Church family, would you be seated and take your copy of God's Word if you have one with you, uh, or maybe open on your phone to 1 Peter chapter 1. For those of you that regularly attend Nansman River, you know we're in the middle of a series through First and Second Thessalonians, having just finished that first letter of Paul. But for Church of the Park, we tend to take a break. Uh, and so we're going to turn to 1 Peter this morning. Here in just a moment, we will stand together as our custom and read that. But let me tell you why I wanted to preach from this text this morning. Let me start by asking you a question. Have you ever been somewhere that you felt as if you just didn't belong? We've probably all felt that way at some point in our life. We go somewhere, we think it's going to be one thing, and it turns out it is not what we thought. We don't know anybody there. I don't know about you. I hate going places where I'm supposed to be social, but I don't know anybody. I would much rather there be some kind of safety net of me knowing at least some people. And you get that overwhelming sense of, I just don't belong here. Now, some of you are such extreme extroverts, you've never experienced that, but maybe you've experienced on a big picture level. Maybe you've turned on the TV before and watched what's going on around our world or even in our culture, our own state, and you go, I just don't know that I belong here. Do you know that that's actually a good feeling? That Christians shouldn't think it's a bad thing that we look at our world and think we don't belong? The letter that the Apostle Peter writes to churches in what's now modern-day Turkey was written with that very thought in mind. He calls them at the very beginning of this letter, elect exiles. Elect simply means chosen by God. They were God's church in that place. They were the people of God who had believed the gospel unto salvation. But then he calls them exiles. It's a strange word to call a group of people who had very likely never traveled more than about 30 miles from their home. You see, in ancient times, uh, people, most people would never travel more than 30 miles from their home in their entire lives. So most of these people had never been anywhere beyond where they lived. And probably for generations after generations, they had lived in those places. And yet Peter still addresses them as exiles. An exile is someone who is in a place where they don't belong. And that's what Christians are supposed to feel like. And that's how Peter writes. He writes this letter to give hope to those who feel as if they do not belong. So this is what I want us to think about this morning. The living hope that we find in Jesus Christ alone that we cling to in this world in which we are not supposed to feel like we belong. If you have your Bible, stand with me. I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 of the New Testament book of 1 Peter. For those that may be joining us and you've never been with us, we believe this is the word of God. And so because of that, we stand in honor of it. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. God, would you bless the reading of your word? Thank you that we can enjoy your creation this morning and worship you in it. May we bring glory and honor to your son, Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. I told our worship team when we started setting up this morning, we had all that great cloud cover that right when I got up here to preach, the sun was going to come out. And that's exactly what has happened. But we're, we're so grateful to be able to be out here. A couple of years ago, it rained us out last year with COVID. We were unable to gather with this size group. So it's wonderful to be back out here in the park thinking about God's word together today. And for just a few minutes, what I want us to think about is the living hope offered to us in Jesus Christ alone that we can cling to in a world that is not, as we sung about a moment ago, in a world that is not our home. The first thing I want us to see from this text is what is the cause of our living hope? If you're wanting to follow along with me inside of the connector that was handed to you, uh, where you saw the words to the songs, there's also some sermon notes and to keep you uh, from getting lost. So the first thing is the cause of our living hope. Peter writes that, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because it is according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So right here at the very beginning in this letter addressed to these elect exiles in this, in this New Testament church, Peter establishes why they have hope. They don't have hope because they created it on their own. They don't have hope because they were born into the right family or born into the right place or born at the right time. They have hope because God has caused something to happen in their lives. He says that it is according to God's great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. So from the outset of this letter, Paul establishes this one clear biblical principle that the only people with the kind of hope that is presented in this passage are those who have experienced new life in Jesus Christ. They have been born again. And they're born again because God had mercy on them. They weren't born again because of who they were. They were born again because what God has done. In his letter to Titus, the apostle Paul says, that he saved us not because of works that we have done, but, because, but, but according to his own mercy. Mercy is God looking at you, even in your sin, and sending Jesus to die so that you may have life. This is why we are born again. If you think you did something to cause your position to be right with God, I have news for you this morning, friend. You are on a fool's errand. It is only by the mercy of God, him reaching into our lives and doing that which we could not do that makes us right with him and provides a living hope for us. In John chapter three, one of the most famous stories in the Bible is a religious man that comes to Jesus at night. This man's name was Nicodemus and he came to explore the things that Jesus was teaching and Nicodemus asks Jesus how someone can be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says this to him, I, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Then he warns him, he says, do not marvel at this, that I say you must be born again, because the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. I was watching, uh, you know, 20 minutes or so ago when we still had some cloud cover during that first song, a, a little bit of a stiff breeze picked up for a minute. Several of you reached for your jackets and you put your jackets on because it got cold for just a second. If you would have known that that breeze was coming, you would have already had your jacket on, but you didn't. Why? Because we don't know when the wind's going to blow. We don't know the direction the wind's going to blow. And Jesus affirms that here and compares that to the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't know where the Holy Spirit is at work, but here's what we recognize. It is only through the power of God in our lives that causes us to be born again, that brings him into his kingdom. Jesus made a living hope possible for us. So here's what we have to understand. It is by the sovereign will of the Father, and through the atoning work of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit brings new birth into our lives. So if you have hope of an elect exile today, you have that hope because by the mercy of God, he has caused you to be born again. Number two is the object of our living hope. Look at verses four and five there in 1 Peter 1. He writes, to an inheritance, that this is what we've been born again to, right? To an inheritance. That is, he uses three adjectives here, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Then he says that it is kept in heaven for you by God's power and being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the object of our living hope, this thing that we're born into, he describes in various ways, beginning with these three adjectives describing that hope that we have. And to rightly understand these three words helps us to really grasp what it means to have a living hope in a land of exile. First, he says that our living hope is imperishable. That word imperishable means that it is not subject to decay. Everything around us right now as we speak is in some form of decay or another. We're in the fall season, and this is what happens in the fall. We think it's pretty when the leaves turn from a bright green into yellow and red and and, uh, orange and then eventually into brown and fall off. We may think it's pretty to our eyes, but what's really happening? Decay. As the seasons progress, everything around us, even our own bodies, is in a state of decay, but God is not. And the word that Paul uses there to describe our living hope, imperishable, is a word that describes God himself, that God is the only one who is imperishable. And because he is imperishable, the hope that he provides for us is also imperishable. It is not subject to decay like the rest of this world. The second adjective that Peter uses is the word undefiled. Undefiled means that it cannot be stained. In this instance, meaning it cannot be stained by sin. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 says, For if it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So just as God is imperishable, and so is our living hope, Jesus was undefiled by sin, and so is our living hope. Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinning as you and I do. Although he was tempted, the Bible says, in every way possible, in every way that we are tempted. Jesus was tempted, but he lived a sinless life, undefiled. And so it is the hope that he offers to us that is also undefiled because his life was perfect. The third is unfading. Unfading means that it will last forever. You see, it's, it won't decay like everything else in this world. It's not affected by sin like Christ. And, and like we are so often affected by sin and Jesus wasn't. That hope that he offers isn't. And because of that, it will be unfading. It will last forever. It will be kept in heaven for you by God's power. He is the one guarding it. So why is that important for us to recognize? It's important for us to recognize because if it were by our power, if, if for some reason we were able to cause ourselves to have hope in this world, then we would have to guard that hope ourselves. We would have to protect that hope. We would have to try to make up for it when we allowed it to be tainted by sin but it's important for us to see that because it comes from God, it is God who is guarding it. He is the one that will make sure that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He is the one guarding our salvation until the last time. He is the one who will ensure that it lasts forever. I have great news for you today. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. Doesn't matter what you did today. Doesn't matter what you'll do tomorrow. If you are truly in Christ, you will tr be truly in Christ forever. Now that doesn't mean that if you walked an aisle when you were eight years old or got wet in church when you were 12, that you are in Christ. The question really means, what does it truly mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ means to be born again by the mercy of God. And if God has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, if he has taken that which was born of flesh and made it born of the spirit and given you new life, understand this, my friend. He is the one guarding that for you. There's a pastor down in North Carolina named J.D. Greer. He wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. That's an interesting thing for a pastor to write a book about, right? We would want people to, we would think, ask Jesus into their heart. But so many people that have grown up in church constantly are in this cycle of feeling like there's something more they have to do. It's almost as if they think they need to get saved over and over and over again. And so Pastor JD writes this book to kind of address that with them. And in this book, he writes this. He says, it is not incorrect to say, an old Baptist phrase, once saved, always saved. It's just incomplete. The full doctrine of eternal security is that once we are saved, we will always be saved and that those who are saved will persevere in their faith to the end. It is true that once we are saved, we are always saved, but it is also true that once we are saved, we will forever be following Jesus. This is what it means to set the object of our living hope before us in Christ, that he guards it for us and we follow him in obedience. Even when, and this leads us to our third point, even when that living hope is tested in us. 
Peter continues here in verse 6 and 7. He writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, it will, for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to this, it's actually five churches that he writes this letter to. It was a a circular letter. It went to one place and they passed it on. It ends up being delivered to five original cities. And in all five of these cities, in, in what was known as Asia Minor at the time, now in Turkey, all five of those churches were under varied levels of persecution. That because of their faith, life was difficult. Because they had chosen to follow Christ in a time when the culture said to follow Christ is to reject the way of the world and to reject what was the norm of that culture, those churches suffered for it. And Peter writes to him and says, for right now, it is necessary that you be grieved by various trials, that testing is going to come on those who have a living hope in Jesus. But notice what he says. He says, even though if for a little while, meaning, and here's the good news of this, that these testings only last for a little while. You may say, wait, doesn't it seem like it's going on and on and on forever? Yeah, well, eventually, you're not going to live in this world anymore. Eventually, this place where we're in exile will no longer hold us. So the worst they can do to us is kill us. The worst they could have done in the first century to these Christians. And that may seem odd to you that we would say that, but ultimately that's what Peter's saying. The worst they can do to you is kill you. Because for just a little while, you're going to suffer these trials so that your faith will prove to be genuine. And he uses an illustration of precious metal like gold being tested in fire. Because when you put gold in a hot enough fire, all the impurities rise to the top. And that's what's happening in this church's life. And that's what's happened throughout the generations of Christianity. That in various ways, at at varied levels of intensity, the church has experienced trials to make their faith more genuine. In the New Testament book of James, we, we read there to not only recognize that our faith is tested to prove its genuineness, but also that we should even consider that a joyous experience. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So yes, church, we are exiles in this world. Yes, we don't feel at home here. Yes, there may be even times as there are around the world where Christians are persecuted for their faith, and that very well may come upon us in our world, at some, in our culture at some point. And what should we do? We should link arms with the generations of Christians who have experienced suffering before us all the way back to the beginning of the New Testament church and say, I will find joy in this suffering because it is in this suffering that my faith is purified. It is in this suffering that my faith proves to be genuine as I follow after the one who is set before me as my only hope in life and death. Finally, we see that we have assurance of our living hope. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I find this interesting that Peter was one of the closest earthly men to Jesus. Jesus had numerous people that followed him. He didn't only have 12, but he had 12 people that he called his disciples. They were with him for the entirety of his three to four year ministry on earth. But amongst those 12, there were three men, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest of the 12 to Jesus. There were certain things that they got to see with their own eyes. One of these was the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter, James, and John goes up with Jesus onto a mountaintop, and there the the full glory of God is revealed in Christ to these three men. And Old Testament saints come down and, and, and are there in this cloud of God's glory with Jesus and these three disciples. So much so that in that account, Peter says, let's just build some tents here and live here forever. Let, let's, just, let's just stay on this mountaintop. Peter got to see things with his own eyes that few others ever got to actually see. But then when we get to the time when Jesus is arrested, before he's taken to his crucifixion, what happens? Peter, who has seen things that no one else has ever seen, denies Jesus. Not just once, not twice, but three times, afraid for his own life. Ultimately, Jesus restores Peter. And then all these years later, Peter writes to this church who has never seen him, has never physically with their eyes seen Christ and says this, though you have not seen him, you loved him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. You see, Peter had seen it and still denied it, had to ultimately repent of that. And he writes this to people who have never seen Jesus with their eyes, but believe with the same assurance that Peter believed that Jesus was real, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what was prophesied that he would do, and that he was resurrected from the dead, making our salvation sure. This is why we have assurance of our living hope because it has been sealed and assured by the power of God himself. And now we rejoice even as exiles with joy that he says is inexpressible and filled with glory, knowing that we will one day obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So no matter what happens to us in this life, Out in front of us is this living hope sealed and assured by Jesus alone according to the sovereign plan of God, the atoning work of Jesus brought into our lives when we experience new birth in him. So what? I have one simple question for you this morning, friend. Do you have the living hope that is found in Christ alone? Maybe somebody, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a family member invited you to come and hang out with us on this beautiful day at the park. And you agreed because you love your friend, you love your family member. And you're listening to me talk about having living hope in this life and you're just really not sure. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm just really not sure if what this guy's saying is the only way. Maybe it's a good way for these few hundred people that are gathered here. Maybe it's a good way for me, but maybe it's just one way 
Maybe it's just one option. Maybe I can work my own way to being right with God. Maybe my good can outweigh my bad. Please hear me, friend. It is only through salvation offered by Jesus Christ that you can have hope. He is our only hope. He is the only hope that you can have. But here's the good news for you. It is freely offered to you today. There's nothing you have to do. There's no charge for it. We're giving something away today that is completely free. No strings attached. God loves you. And in his mercy, he is offering to you today new life in Christ, if you will but believe. In his letter to the church in Rome, the apostle Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in, G in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know this, you are deserving of death. And when Paul writes about death here, he's not just talking about the physical death that our decaying bodies will all one day experience. He's writing about spiritual death, eternal separation, paying the price for your sin for all eternity in a real place called hell. That's the death that, Peter, that Paul has in mind when he writes, for the wages of sin is death. It's an extreme thing for us to think about that God would separate us from his presence for all eternity. But that's what the Bible says. But here is the wonderful news that is promised to us in scripture that God offers as a free gift, eternal life, but only through one way, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes in the Father except through him. So I'll ask you again, do you have the living hope that is found in Christ alone? We say, well, I don't. If you don't, here's the good news. All you must do is believe. Turn from your sin and turn towards God and he will cause new life to come into your life and you will be able to follow after that living hope for the rest of your lives. Believe and be saved today. For the many who I know here are gathered who hold out Christ as their only living hope, who have been born again. Here's what we do. We find joy in our exile. We don't embrace this world. We find joy in the fact that we are here but for a moment. And that what God has set before us, the, the goal of our salvation, new life in him, Christ-likeness in this world and an eternity with our Lord is what awaits us. That is our hope. So let me encourage you, Nansman River, find hope as exiles today. Be joyful. We celebrate out here today, not as those who are cast down, but those who as elect exiles have an immeasurable, inexpressible glory and joy brought to us by God through Christ alone because he is our living hope. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for such a hope as this that while I was still dead in my trespasses and sin, at my very worst moment, Christ Jesus died for me so that I may have life. And that by your mercy, you caused me to be born again to a living hope. And I know the testimony of so many sitting out here in this field today is the same, that while they were dead in their trespasses and sin, you caused them to be born again to a living hope. We thank you for that. 
And we pray for our friends and family members who may be with us today who hear this good news for the first time. We ask that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus, that they would trust in him alone and find the hope that we all share. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.